Thank you for tuning in to the best parenting show on the internet. Post Daily Dose. Um, again, it's, it's with great pleasure and it's with great love I introduce Dr. Brian Post. Welcome, Brian. <laughs> Hey, good evening, everyone. Come up here real quick. Turn the top down. I'm sitting there realizing I had left my char phone charger um, plugged in up under there. And you know what's going to happen if I just leave it there. I'm going to go off and forget it. But do you know why I'm going to go off and forget it? Because of stress. So I'm going to be lecturing, and my brain and my body is going to reach a level of stress. Now, that level of stress is going to stay within my window of tolerance, so I'm not going to yell too much. I'm not going to say anything, you know, that I'm not supposed to since I'm in the house of the Lord. And my mom is probably watching me somewhere. Amen. So I'm going to be operating within my window of tolerance. But what that's going to do, just automatically, naturally... That level of stress I'm going to be experiencing is going to cause a part of my brain called the hippocampus. It's going to cause a short-term memory to kind of shut off. And so the memory I had of seeing my phone charger up under there, up under that table, is going to just go, go away. And so then at the end of the lecture, I'd just walk right out. So I would forget it there because of stress. And here's something I want to tell you guys. so important. In times of stress... Our thinking becomes confused and distorted, and our short-term memory is suppressed. That's for all of us. When you are stressed, you're not thinking clearly, and you don't remember effectively. And I want you to hold that in your mind, because how many of you have adopted children? How many of you get stressed? How many of us get stressed day in and day out without our children? We all do. And stress causes confusing, distorted thinking, suppresses the short-term memory. So when you are dealing with a stressed-out individual, they're not thinking clearly. And see, that's not just a matter of them making bad choices. When your children are misbehaving, that's not just a matter of them making bad choices. That really, in their brain, their brain is not functioning optimally in that moment. And today, tonight... I'm going to squeeze this 20 years of experience, 22 years of experience into this next hour and a half and uh, help you guys look at this in a different way. I call this a different paradigm of looking at children. Most of you came here this evening to, to hear something different about your children's behaviors. And I'm going to tell you right up front, that's the wrong place to be looking. That's the wrong place to focus. Your children's behaviors is actually not the problem. It's the stress and the trauma they've experienced that caused the behaviors. That's the problem. But in most of our mental health system, in most of our traditional parenting, even in our churches, we always focus on kids' behaviors. It's always their behaviors. And we're always looking at their behaviors, and we're saying, stop that, don't do that, you're going to get in trouble for that, you're driving me crazy. And what we're actually not paying attention to is the stress that is actually causing the behavior. And this is social conditioning. So what I'm going to tell you 
what I know to be true based on 22 years of experience of working all over the world with the most severe children, the most stressed out families. I've got my own three children, one adopted, two biological daughters, one adopted son, he's 26, two biological daughters. I'm going to tell you that it is our understanding of our own stress and then our understanding of our children's stress that will help them heal through their problems. When we can figure that piece out, we can figure everything out. Because I also know that it is in the midst of their behavior, this is going to be one that's a contradiction for you, in the midst of their behavior is when you have the greatest window for healing. In the midst of your child's problem behavior is when you have the greatest window into healing. Because it's in the midst of their most severe behavior that their brainstem that holds all their trauma and all their most painful memories, it's in the midst of that severe behavior when the brainstem is open. So the brainstem opens in all of those experiences they've had before, all that stress, all that fear, all that grief, all that pain, all that loss, all that abuse, all that neglect, all of a sudden opens up and it starts informing the rest of their brain and pretty soon that's all they see, that's all they hear, that's all they know. So when we, in the present moment, see that behavior and we're like, cut it out. Stop that. Pop, pop, pop. I'm going to give you something to cry about. <laughs> what we actually end up doing is we end up reinforcing the stress that's in their brainstem already. That's why children grow older but don't grow better. Because... Even in our most loving place as parents, we are conditioned to view our children's behaviors from a place of fear. And that fear causes us to react, and it makes it impossible for us to see their fear. We don't see fear underneath behaviors. All we see is bad behavior. And the reason you see bad behavior is because of the brain. I'm going to get into that just a little bit this evening. But before I get into that, I want to remind you guys, every day, almost five days a week, on Facebook, Post Institute, I do a parenting show. It's called Post Daily Dose. It's the best little 10-minute parenting show on the planet, because it's the only 10-minute parenting show that I'm aware of. <laughs> every day, Post Institute on Facebook, you can go on there, and I'm talking about some issue as it relates to families, parenting, healing, trauma, stress, and there's probably over 400 videos on there right now. You could go on there every single day and watch another watch a video. It's 10 minutes. Some of them, like tonight's talk, is being streamed live. So you'll be able to go and you can watch tonight's talk on there. I've been doing these videos for about a year and a half. And there's many all-day talks that I've done on there. And it's just a, a great, easy, accessible way for you to continue to learn. Why? Because the brain only changes in two ways. It changes through repetition and emotional impact, a.k.a. pain. The only way our adult brain changes is through pain. It's so hard for us to continue to learn over and over, to read, to read, to read, to read, to read. So we stop doing it before we have an opportunity to rewire our brain. Pain changes your brain immediately. The thing is, the beauty is, if you're in a stressed out home right now, you're in pain. There's a great opportunity right now for your brain to start changing. 
So we're going to get into some of that this evening. So one of my favorite scriptures, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all fear. There's no fear in love. I want you to keep that in mind. A lot of times what we've experienced as children, and the reason that is so challenging, is because what we experienced was love, but it was really fear. So it was fear disguised as love. So when your parents were spanking you and they said, I'm spanking you because I love you. I'm putting, in your, I'm putting you in your room because I love you. I'm taking all your stuff away from you because I love you. That's not love. That was fear. So we grew up with that conditioning, thinking that we're behaving towards our children in a loving way when in fact, that way in which we're behaving towards them is based in fear. And if it's based in fear, it's based in stress. So I'm going to go right into this this evening. There are three pathways of emotional expression that you have to understand. You have to understand these three pathways. And we've all had this experience. So first, I want you to think about yourself. When you were a kid and you rolled your eyes at your parents and you huffed in your puff, was that okay? It was not. Attitudes is one of your very first ways in which you express emotion. We have three pathways. We have attitudes, we have feelings, and we have behaviors. The reason you need these pathways is because energy, emotion, is energy in motion. So emotion is energy in motion. When you feel an emotion, we only have two primary emotions, love and fear. Those are our only two primary states. Our bodies only know two energy states. One is a thriving state, which is akin to love, and the other is a surviving state, which is akin to fear. Anytime you become stressed, your entire cellular system constricts into survival. You move into survival. That means you cannot be open because you are in survival. And that's stress. That's any cell in your body can cause your whole brain and body system to do that. Any cell in your body which stores trauma can cause you to constrict into survival. When someone asks you to do something, just like when you was a kid, your plan and your parents ask you to take out the trash, the first thing you do is you'd roll your eyes. The second thing you would hear is if you roll your eyes at me one more time, I will knock them into the back of your head. Right around. <laughs> Don't you huff and puff me. Right? So attitudes aren't okay. And we become conditioned for this. So attitudes get suppressed because we can't express them. So then we drop down to feelings. How many of you could yell at your parents? Cuss your parents out, not if you wanted to stay alive, right? There was no, no possible way you was going to do that. So then our feelings get suppressed. We can't express to our attitudes, we drop down to feelings. If we can't express to our feelings, we drop down to behaviors. How many of you could freely act out and misbehave as kids growing up? No. Why? Because we were too scared to, right? We were too scared to, but sometimes we pushed the limit. And what would happen when you finally did push the limit? Do you ever realize that? It's like the pain could increase, but the pain in most families can only increase so high before your parents really do start to feel quite helpless. Like when you hit adolescence, you might get in trouble the first time or the second time, and they might take something away, but pretty soon there's not a whole lot they can do. So if you can't express through your attitudes and you can't express through your feelings, you drop down into your behaviors. 
Now, that's what we spend a lot of time trying to control. I always say you know when you're stressed, when you're trying to con control, suppress, or change. Just remember, C-S-C, control, suppress, change. That's when you know you're stressed. That's when you know you're operating from a place of fear. Here's the thing, behavior, you can only suppress behavior so far because that emotion has to come out and it comes out through anger and depression. If you can't express your attitude, you go down to your feelings. If you can't express your feelings, you go down to your behaviors. If you can't express your behaviors, you go down to anger and depression. Anger and depression have to come out through behaviors. And so I call that the trauma triangle. If you spend six months or longer in anger, depression, and behavior, you're living in an environment of trauma. This is why I don't diagnose children. I stopped diagnosing children 20 years ago because I realized that there was a child in a home that needed a diagnosis, everyone in the family could qualify. If you spend six months or longer in an environment of anger, depression, and behaviors, you're living in trauma. This is where we get diagnosis, it's where we get medication, it's where we get restraint, it's where we get multiple placements, it's where we get disrupted adoption, it's where we get residential, it's where we get group homes. It's at that level. Now, all those things I just mentioned, think about this. This is where it gets crazy, and the reason it gets crazy, it's always going to come back to this. The reason it gets crazy is because the more severe the behavior gets, guess what happens to us? The more stressed out we become. And the more stressed out we become, guess what happens to our thinking? Gets confused and distorted. The more confused and distorted our thinking becomes, guess what happens to our short-term memory? It gets shut down. So what happens in essence is we become crazy. We keep doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. Einstein said that's the definition of insanity. And that's what we do. That's what we've, we've come condi become conditioned to do with children. So if you can't express through your attitudes and your feelings and anger and depression, and all you can do is act out from anger, depression, and behaviors, and that anger and depression behavior stresses out all the adults, then what the adults do is they keep focusing on the behavior even more because they become more stressed. And then that's where you get diagnosis. What is diagnosis for? Diagnosis is for behaviors. What is medication for? Medication is for behaviors. What do you expect to change when you send your child to residential treatment? Behaviors. When your child gets so bad that they can't stay at home anymore and they go to a group home, what are you expecting them to do in that group home? Manage their behaviors. When you get sent to therapy and your child ends up with five diagnoses, what are those all diagnoses for? It's all for behaviors. It's all for behaviors. And guess what's happening? We are getting conditioned and we are training our children because all the focus and all the energy is going into what? Behaviors. You want to know why your children's behaviors don't get better? It's because all of our time and energy and fear and stress is focused on the negative behavior. The problem is we're stressed. We're stressed. Here's how you flip it. When you realize that a child, like all of your children, all of your adopted children have experienced trauma. Severe trauma. Right? Just, just the adoption process alone is traumatic. 
The fact that an infant goes from a biological womb, the only thing it knows for nine months or eight months or however long it gets, gets to be in there, not to mention the drug abuse, the alcohol abuse, the domestic violence, the prostitution, the depression, and everything else that goes on in that womb with that infant. The truth is that's all that infant knows. That infant doesn't know anymore. It doesn't matter how bad it is in there. That's all they know, and all of a sudden that's not there anymore. It's not there anymore. So there's a level of loss that gets stored in their brainstem, a level of loss and a level of sadness and a level of unknown, a level of fear that gets stored in their brainstem that just gets covered over. That's at the very earliest stage. But here's the thing. What about you guys when you were infants? When was the last time you thought about when you were in your mom's tummy? Think about that. Where was your mom when she was pregnant with you. Now you've heard some of the stories of what was going on with mom and dad back when mom was pregnant. You don't have to know all the, all the details. You just have to know enough. What was going on for you when your mom was pregnant with you? As early as the fourth week after conception, the fetus can hear. By the fourth week after conception, you were hearing everything going on. Was mom and dad's relationship good and positive and loving and supportive, or was it conflictual? Was it was there was it was dad not there? Was mom doing it on her own? Was she trying to do it with the support of parents, or maybe she didn't have the support of parents? What was going on? As early as the second trimester, the fetus, you and I, can think. You got nine months, and guess what happens with that nine months? Those memories all get stored in your brainstem. They get stored in your brainstem. They're called pre-verbal mem pre memories, and they never go away. They never go away. Some of us are re-experiencing pre-verbal memories to this day. To this day, and we don't even know it. We don't even know it. Your children definitely are. And then you have experience after experience after experience before they're finally adopted. Yeah, give me some adopted Adopted ages. How old was your child when you adopted them? Thirteen. Thirteen. I was six. Six. Seven. Thirteen, six, seven, five, four, three, two, one. All of those are experiences that they've had. You think those have been painful, pleasant experiences? No, they haven't. They've been painful experiences. There's been more grief, loss, sadness, and pain than there has been joy and happiness. And even when there was joint happiness, guess what? It got disrupted and they had to go to another placement. You don't have a 13-year-old that you adopt who hadn't already gone through hell. Right? You don't have a seven, seven years, seven years of trying to find a home and not being able to find a home. All that's stored in their brain. And that's not even talking about their earliest experiences. Guess what? Stress turns it all on. Stress turns it all on, all manner of stress. Not just, oh, I'm so stressed out. Not that. I'm talking about walking in a dark room. I'm talking about smelling a smell. I'm talking about cafeteria, group activities at school, recess, going to McDonald's, leaving home, going to bed, waking up, taking a bath. It's all stressful. It's all stressful and it all turns on. It all has the ability to turn on those painful Memories, and those memories don't have thoughts associated with them. They don't have thoughts that are unconscious. 
So what it does is it just creates emotion, and emotion is energy. And all of a sudden, you got a kid who goes from being calm and happy to out of control, and you're like, what is going on? It's because your trauma memories got turned on. Now, I'm going to give you an example. 47 years come June 4th for me. 47 years old. I was adopted when I was an infant. I have core abandonment and rejection issues. And I've known this for a long time. I teach this stuff, right? Done a whole bunch of all kinds of therapies and emotional work and everything else. What's today? This is March. So at the end of January, the end of January, I had had a long day, got back to my hotel room, looked on my phone, happened to pop open Facebook, and I see that my best friend passed away. First of all, I was in denial. This is a goof. Like, first, I was mad. Who the hell was playing games? I called him. Because I was going to be like telling him, you know, his, it was his brother in law that had posted something. Like, you, you better tell him to stop playing. He didn't answer. I was like, call him again. Text him. I'd just seen him three weeks previous. We'd hung out, we'd had a great time. He was my brother. We'd known each other for 30 years. And then it hit me. Whoosh. He was gone. And I was, I was in shock. I just boo-hooed. Boo-hooed. And I, that, I think it's like an Oklahoma term. I'm from Oklahoma. <laughs> in Oklahoma, you boo-hoo. It's like a big cry. But here, people are like, boo-hoo's not good. You know, boo-hoo, they're making fun of people. No, you boo-hoo. Ugly cry. You guys call it an ugly cry. I call it a boo-hoo. Mental breakdown in California. <laughs> yeah. So I have another cry. I'm calling friends, processing, letting them call my mom, you know, tell them what's happened, process, process. Obviously sad. It's okay to be sad when you lose your friend. You should be sad. I'm sad. I know I'm sad. But I also know my abandonment got triggered. See, now I'm conscious of it. I know my abandonment's gotten triggered. So I'm able to create a little distance between being completely shut down and grieving my birth loss to being able to grieve my friend. And so after a couple weeks, funeral, everything, I just, I, you know, I'd love to grieve. I'd love to cry. I'd love to cry. It just feels good to me. I've been crying for 20 years. Once you get started, you don't want to stop. It just feels good. Just let it out. Tears, flow, snot, so all this. It's hard for me to cry, even though I feel like I have to. You got to teach yourself. You have to train yourself because mm -hmm. a, lot times, so a lot of times we didn't learn. A lot of times we didn't. A lot of times we didn't get taught. Yeah. Yeah. Let me tell you one way. One of the ways you can allow yourself to cry is when you're feeling it, but you Why can't I cry. I get in trouble because I cry really loud and. Yes. Like, yeah. yeah. So to see that's conditioning that says don't cry. So one of the things you can do now as an adult when you feel it but you can't cry is just put sound to it. Just go, Arr! just go, ah, and then before you know it, the tears will start coming. Right? Let it go. Let it go. This sound's not going to hurt anybody. Has a sound ever broke anybody's heart? Has a sound ever crippled anybody? A sound? A sound. Yeah. Ah! Nobody's ever died from a sound, have they? No, but oh, no. we think, I mean, we think, we think sounds will hurt us. 
We think if we let the feelings go, we're going to die. We think if we have the feelings, we'll never come back. It's all fear. It's all fear. So then just a couple weeks ago, I have an all-day camp with my families, and we do emotional work. We do deep emotional work in these camps. And I did some emotional work because I knew I needed to work through some more of that grief. And I knew exactly, it's not just a grief for my friend, I've kind of grieved him. I, I need to go back and I need to work on some of that deep wound, some of that deep abandonment wound. And then I realized what happened, the reason I got triggered is because of the unexpected loss. It was the unexpected loss and that's what, that's what uh, babies go through at adoption. At that, that unexpected loss. All of a sudden, you're comfortable, you're safe, and all of a sudden it's not there anymore. I'm 47 years old. I teach this stuff. I've been teaching this stuff for 20 years. And I still have those experiences. But I've gotten better at understanding that about myself. And because I understand it about myself, I don't get as triggered. I don't get as overwhelmed. I know what it is. Well, see, that's what we have to be able to do with our children. The reason we have to be able to do that with our children, the reason you've got to understand your stuff the more you can understand it, the better. You don't have to understand all the details, but the more you can understand what it is that triggers you and why. Why do you get so overwhelmed with your kid's hyperactivity or your kid's yelling or your kid's defiance or your kid's talking back? What is it that that's triggering in you? When did you experience that feeling before? Where did that come from? The reason you got to be able to do that is because we have to be able to guide our children out of behaviors. We have to be able to guide them out of behaviors. I have to be able to stay in a present enough place without getting completely overwhelmed that when you're having your behaviors, I can say to you, let it go. Let it out. I can see how mad you are. I can see how sad you are. You deserve to feel what you are feeling. Now think about that. How different is that from what we experienced as kids? Instead of daddy grabbing you by the arm and going, what, 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 what? What if you What believe is allowing them to have their emotions yeah. and, you know, just honestly, like if they are having a breakdown, to be able to let them experience their emotions and then talk to them about it. Yes, mm -hmm. that's it. That's the formula. When we don't get overwhelmed, we can create an environment to allow our children to work through their pain. That's all they're doing. Their behaviors are conditioned because it's the only thing we taught. We have taught them. Now think about this. Think about this for a moment. If all we've done is focused on suppressing their behaviors, all we've taught them to do is express behaviors. They haven't learned anything else. The moment you can start accepting attitudes and feelings, guess what happens to behaviors? They stop coming up. When you can roll your eyes at me, and I can say, well, sometimes with the eye rolls, it's nothing. You know, they're, they're, eye rolling is nothing. The fact that we feel like if our children roll their eyes at us, we are going to die. I would just lie. I mean, we were like, oh my God. Jesus, help me. <laughs> he just rolled his eyes at me. I'm about to knock all his hair off his head. Right? We just get so overwhelmed by this. It's because we're imprinted. We got blueprints that we operate from. 
Those are all fear-based blueprints that get turned on. Because that eye roll stresses me. And that stress comes from the fact that I rolling my eyes as a kid wasn't a safe thing. So then what we do is we take these traumatized children who have all this pain they're working from, and we have the, our own pain, and they roll their eyes and we feel completely offended. They yell, we feel completely offended. So eye rolling, nothing. I'm not even going to attend to that. The reason I'm not going to attend to an eye roll is because it's nothing. I know it's an energy transition. They're just trying to transition. They're just trying to do what they need to do. But the problem is, is when they roll their eyes and you attend to it, and you start talking about it, don't roll your eyes. Well, guess what they're going to do next? They're going to roll their eyes and they're going to cuss, or they're going to yell. And then you're going to be like, don't you be talking about it like that in my house. And then before you know it, something's getting broke. We do that. We do that. We do that. If your child rolls their eyes and, and you don't say anything, they're going to transition and go do what it is you ask them to do. Nine times out of ten. Occasionally, you're going to need to follow up and remind them, hey, honey, still got to take that trash out. Hey, you still got to go off. You ready to walk right back out of the room? Occasionally, you have to teach them what it is that you want. But when you start focusing on that attitude, you push them right in their feelings. When children have feelings, what do you need to do? Now listen to this. Feeling the spirit. Feeling the spirit up in here. When your children are having their behaviors, their feelings, when they're having their feelings, if you can remember in the moment most of you don't have you don't have a clue what your children have gone through before they came into your home. We can have an idea. Some of you don't even have an idea. Much less know the day. Those those were hours of neglect and violence. Those were night after night of sexual abuse and physical abuse. Those were weeks of caring for siblings whose parents were drunk and drug addicted. And those hours and days and nights and weeks turned into months, which turned into years, years of nakedness. Years of nakedness. If I said to you right now, take all your clothes off. Take them off, take them off. Take them off and get on out of here and go home. And don't put them on until I tell you to. No clothes. No clothes. Just naked. And you had to go out in the world and you had to do your job and you had to go to Walmart and you had to pump gas and you had to go pay bills, but naked. You'd be stressed out, wouldn't you? Just over some freaking clothes. Well, when you don't have love, attention, affection, shelter, someone to change your diaper when it's dirty, someone to pick you up when you're sad, and then that, that's just the absence of it. But what if you've got someone hitting you and yelling at you when you've got a dirty diaper or when you're sad? What that does is it changes the brain. <clears throat> See, what we don't realize 
is that these struggles you have with your children, they're not about your children not being able to think. See, thinking is a byproduct of an emotional experience. Thinking is a byproduct of your stress. Thinking doesn't happen first. First you get stressed and overwhelmed, and then you think. And if you're stressed and overwhelmed, your short-term memory shut off. So you can't even remember. So now you're purely in survival. Purely in survival. So if I say to you, all the pain your child has gone through before they come to you has nothing to do with you, nothing at all, not one iota, all the pain, all the abuse and neglect, all that kind of stuff, all the frequent moves, when they're in the midst of their feelings, when they're expressing their feelings, when they are yelling at you and they are cussing and they are expressing their feelings, when I say to you, that's them expressing their pain. Don't they deserve it? It's a completely different perspective, isn't it? If they're expressing their feelings, they're expressing their pain. Now I'm going to go a couple levels deeper. I'm going to go a couple, level deep, a couple levels deeper. If they're expressing their feelings, they're expressing their pain. How many of your children have had an adult get mad because of the pain and the suffering they've gone through? How many of your children have had an adult look at your child and say, Dad, gummit, you should be mad. If I'd been through half of what you've been through, I'd be a hot mess. You should be mad. You should cuss. You should scream. You should let it out. And I can take it. I can accept it. Because I'm mad and I'm sad right along with you because what you have gone through is unfair and you let it out because you are safe now you have a safe home you have a mom and a dad that loves you we are not going to hurt you we are not going to have sex with you we are not going to abandon you we're just going to keep loving you through all this pain until we get it healed We could do that if you understand that those feelings are an expression of their pain and that those feelings aren't because they're bad kids. Those feelings aren't because they're willfully disobedient. Those feelings aren't because they're manipulative. Those feelings are because they hurt. Hurt children just like hurt adults do hurtful things. That hurt has to come out because that's how you rewire the brain. The very structures of your children's brains are different. Let's see what you got next. Let <laughs> me come back to that. So their brain, based on the experiences they've had, starting very early in development, has been shaped. Their brain is what informs their behaviors. 
If you want to change your child's behavior, you have to change their brain. That's really important to remember. Any behavior change occurs as a byproduct of brain change. The only way you change the brain is through repetition. So what you do with your child consistently, repetitively, over a period of time, every single day. Repetition changes the brain. The same way that abuse changed their brain, love can change their brain. When stress is interrupted and there are prolonged states of regulation, the brain can heal. The brain can learn new pathways. It can be taught new things. When we engage and invest the time and the energy to do it, or through emotional impact. Now, this is where it gets good, in my opinion. The emotional impact is coming every single day. They have a behavior problem. I love for kids to be upset. I love for them to be stressed out. I love for kids to have behavior problems. I love it. It's the most beautiful thing. I was in a home the other night, a couple months ago. First, a visit with the family. And the little eight-year-old, seven or eight-year-old, I can hear him in the other room with the other six or seven kids. And he was, he was doing this uh, repetitive kind of obsessive, I don't want to watch this movie, I don't want to watch this movie, I don't want to watch this movie. And I can hear him in there. I don't want to. He's in there with Grandma and all the other little kids while I'm talking to Mom and Dad. And um, I said, who's that? I said, oh, that's him. I said, okay. So we're talking a little bit more. And I, I hear it just, just continue. But see, what I hear is not an eight-year-old who's just trying to make it difficult. I don't hear that. I don't hear an eight-year-old that's just trying to be disruptive. What, what I hear is an infant. I hear an infant crying and no one coming to soothe him. See, that's what I hear. That's right here. So finally I said to dad, what would happen if you just went in there and said, you know, you're okay, buddy. We're okay. He said, I don't know. I said, well, go in and go in there and see. He said, he went in there and, you know, came back down. I said, oh, he's still, he was still upset. And I said, what would he do if you just picked him up? And this is a big, big dad. I said, if you just picked him up, went and picked him up and just said, it's okay, buddy. And come out here with him. And just pat him on the back say, it's okay. It's okay. What would happen? He said, well, I don't know. I said, well, go try. So dad walks in. He's in there. I don't want to watch this movie. I don't want to watch this movie. I don't want to. And I'm sitting down on the couch. Door's kind of open. Dad comes back out. Oh, he doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go. I said, no, dad. You didn't hear me. I said, go in and pick him up like he's a two-year-old and pat him on the back and bring him out here and tell him he's okay. You're okay, buddy. Oh, you know the feeling, right? Let's do it together. Let's do it together. Do it just like that. You're okay. You're okay. Pat, Pat, you're okay, buddy. You're okay. We know that, don't we? That's innate. So I said, go back in there, pick him up, bring him back out. Dad went back in. You know, in cartoons, you hear behind the closed door. Dad walks back out. Oh, he's pushing up against the wall and climbing the door and holding on to the rug. He's not coming. 
I said, Dad, you did not hear me. Go in and pick him up and bring him out and pat him on the back as if he's a two-year-old and say, you are okay. Dad did, <laughs> Dad did this number. <laughs> Just his pants. He went in, he came back out, he had him. And at this point, the little boy was going, ah! You know, he's squirreling around in Dad's arms, and Dad's patting him, you're okay, buddy, you're okay, you're okay. Ah! And here's what's interesting about this. When you stress, you regress. When you stress, you regress. This child had gone from being a seven-year-old to being an infant. So when he's pushing at dad, he's not really pushing. He's just squirming. And dad's rocking him. I say, go ahead and take him in this other little room. It's a little, uh, little baby room where they have the little uh, nursery. They have a little nursery set up. I say, go ahead and take him in there. It's a much smaller room. It's dark. No one else is in there. Why did I put him in there? I'd ask him to go in there because that's reducing all the stimulation. I want to reduce all the stimulation. Why do I want to reduce the stimulation? I want to reduce the stimulation because when you're stressed, you can't take in any more stimulation. It just overwhelms you. So I had to get Dad go in, and I waited. Dad was in there. He was holding him, you know, standing up in the middle of the room, telling him he's okay. Little boy squirming, squirming, squirming. And finally I said to Dad, you can go ahead and just let him go and just be in here with him. So dad puts the little boy down. The little boy goes over into a corner and balls up and just goes, ah, ah, ah. And he is just whining and whining and whining and whining and whining and whining. I closed the door, left dad sitting in there on the floor, went back out, sat with mom, me and mom talking. I said to mom, can you hear the baby? Can you hear the baby? She said, I never thought about that. This little boy who comes from gross neglect, left to cry, left to cry, left to cry. So then a little bit later, I go back in, I ask Dad, tell Dad to scoot over next to him. He scoots over next to him. And at this point, I can always tell when a parent gets it because they just they just go into a flow. It just gets it just gets so rhythmic. When I asked Dad to scoot over to him, as soon as I asked Dad to scoot over by him, little boy still, you know, like this in the corner, whine, whine. Dad reached over and rubbed his back and said, Son, you're gonna be okay. Dad loves you. I and then I was done. Like I knew, I knew it was, it was good. So I went back out, talked to mom, got ready to wrap up, and I didn't go back in the room, but I could see through the glass door. When I was leaving, the little boy was straddling dad on the floor. Dad had a blanket over him, and he was completely melted in there, melted into him. These folks have had tantrums, which have gone on for three hours. Right now, they've got those tantrums down to about 15 minutes. And mom says he'll, he'll start the tantrum, and I'll tell him he's okay. It's going to be all right. She said, I'll sit in the rocking chair. And this is over a two-week span of time. She said, I'll sit in the rocking chair and I'll just say to him, I'm here, buddy. Whenever you want to come over, I'm here. And she said, he'll go, as he makes her way, as his way into the rocking chair so she can rock him and nurture him. She's addressing the baby, the baby. There's chronological age, there's cognitive age. There's 
emotional age. When you're stressed, you're operating from your emotional age. Your chronological age doesn't matter anymore. How smart you are doesn't matter anymore. When you're stressed, it's your emotional age that's driving everything. Real quick, trauma. Oh, this is an important little slide. When your child is misbehaving and you're talking to them, you're engaging them in a cognitive way. They're not in their cognitive brain. They're in their emotional brain and they're in their body. So a lot of times the best thing you can do when your child is upset is not talk to them at all. Because a lot of times you're talking to them just stresses them out even more. You've got to get down into their body. But you've got to be able to get down in your body too. Trauma is any stressful event which is prolonged, overwhelming, and unpredictable. Any stressful event which is prolonged, overwhelming, and unpredictable. And when that event continues on unexpressed, unprocessed, and misunderstood, that's the difference between a short-term stressful experience versus a long-term, potentially life-altering traumatic event. Any event, any event that is prolonged, overwhelming, and unpredictable. These are traumatic events common with what I call regulatory difficulties. Your regulatory ability is your ability to handle stress. See, we all have a window of tolerance for how much stress we can handle. When you've had these experiences in your life, they impact your ability to tolerate stress. They make your brain very sensitive and they make you very fearful. It's very important. You have a stress-sensitive brain and you're very fearful. So all these events, and what's significant about these events is that they all occur in the context of human relationships. But here's what's really important, especially parental depression and emotional absence. Parental depression and emotional absence are the two most common forms of trauma in our society. And they are the least understood. They are the least researched because you can't see them. But Tiffany Fields is a researcher at the University of Miami. She did a, a study with infants. She hooked two infants up to monitors. One of the infants had a healthy parent, and another one of the infants had a depressed parent. The monitors looked exactly the same when the healthy parent got up and walked away from her baby compared to when the depressed parent walked towards her baby. You follow that? The monitors looked exactly the same. If you've got a healthy parent and you're a healthy child and your parent gets up and walks away, if mama gets up and sets the baby in the chair right now and walks away, baby's going to look at her and she's going to get stressed. Because she's going to want to know where mama's going. She's going to get stressed. Imagine if you experience that stress every time your mama walked towards you. That's the power of nonverbal communication. See, a lot of us have grown up in emotionally absent environments and didn't even know it. You've grown up in trauma and didn't even know it. You had parents who worked hard, paid the bills, put food on the table, kept shelter over your head, put clothes on your body, but they were emotionally absent. They were emotionally disconnected. There was not presence. That's just like living in a trauma environment. 
Now, why is this important? Because of your amygdala, number one. Your amygdala is your fear receptor in your brain. So this is one, this is, I mean, just at a very basic, giving you very basic social and emotional brain, brain stuff here. At a very basic level, your child's amygdala is where all their stress starts in their brain, releases cortisol. It's responsible for fight, flight, or freeze. When you've experienced a great amount of stress and trauma, your amygdala becomes more sensitive. It becomes bigger, it becomes overdeveloped, and it's more sensitive. It re it's like a radar system. In your brain, it doesn't think. It's a part of your primal brain. It's your lower limbic system. It doesn't think. All it does, it goes, uh, 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 like a cave person. So it just scans the environment. Do, 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 looking for a threat. Do, 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 do. Finds a threat and goes haywire. So if you experience a lot of trauma early in life, it's super sensitive. So what may be a threat to some of us, or what may not be a threat to some of us, becomes a threat to this child. Super sensitive. That part of your brain starts producing cortisol. It passes another part of your brain. This is very important. It's a very important little seesaw here that nobody talks about. We don't talk about this enough. There's another structure in your brain called your hypothalamus. Your hypothalamus is supposed to read the cortisol outpouring and then release another hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin is your brain's anti-stress hormone. Let me get real basic here, because I like to keep it really simple. If your child's experienced a lot of stress and a lot of trauma, they pump out a lot of cortisol. Your hypothalamus is supposed to release oxytocin because that's your anti-stress hormone. So the oxytocin is supposed to turn on and calm down the cortisol. <laughs> calm down the cortisol, guess, what, guess who else calms down? The child does. Right? So your amygdala is online shortly after you conceive. It's fully online when you're 18 months old. Your hypothalamus is not until you're 36 months old, into the 36-month range before it becomes fully online. But here's what's important. Your amygdala pumps out stress automatically because we need stress to stay alive. But when you've experienced too much stress, it damages your brain. Your oxytocin response is a learned response. You've got to be taught how to release oxytocin. Who do you have to be taught by? Your parents. Your parents have you how to release oxytocin through attention, affection, holding, nurturing, kindness, repetition, love. <laughs> how, many, how many parents do we have biological children? Okay. You had your biological children and you tell me you were happy, assuming, most of you, some of you, happy, excited. All that's oxytocin. Maybe you had a co-parent or a husband or a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, that was there with you, rubbing the belly, talking to the belly, happy, happy, good food, you slept real good, daddy took good care of you, felt good, had a good pregnancy, may have gotten a little stressful here and there, baby comes out, maybe you breastfed, that's called rich, that's called a rich environment, early, the early stage of your baby's brain development, you are flooding them with oxytocin. 
Flooding them with oxytocin. Yeah, baby. Flooding them with oxytocin. Their brain being flooded by oxytocin strengthens, strengthens their brain against cortisol. So when they get three, four, five, and it's time for them to, you know, toddler over into daycare, preschool, or whatever, kindergarten, guess what they're able to do? They're able to tolerate the stress. So they may be sad, and they may be crying, they may, might cry for a little bit, but then they go ahead and play, and they have a pretty good day, they have fun. It's because of the oxytocin that their brain has already been taught at a very early age, early. Well, if you didn't get oxytocin when you're in your mama's belly, and instead you got stress, you got abandonment, or you got alcohol exposure, or you got drug exposure, or you got a mom who didn't sleep, or a dad who beat mom, there's no oxytocin. So you don't have, you don't have the capacity to calm your stress down. What I'm going to tell you guys is that when your children start misbehaving, it's because they've gone outside of their window of tolerance for how much stress they can handle. We all do it. We all have a window of tolerance. And once that window of tolerance has gotten small because the stress has gotten too high because we just can't handle it anymore, then we start misbehaving. And the reason we start doing that is because we don't have enough oxytocin to calm ourselves down. We don't have enough. But we can always learn it. It's never too late to learn oxytocin. That's why some of you bring these children into their home, into your homes, and their brains turn on. It's like they light up. They go from really struggling to doing really well. Until the behaviors start to get more intense. When the behaviors start to get more intense, because that's natural for them. It's natural for them that the behaviors are going to get more intense because they're going to start working through all these emotions, all these trauma emotions. See, they're supposed to, it's, it's a natural process. It's a natural process to be really anxious and really sensitive when you have post-traumatic stress disorder. See, most of your children have post-traumatic stress disorder, which has affected their regulatory system. So they've experienced trauma. So when they get stressed, when there's something that triggers it, like a soldier, like with a soldier, we understand PTSD, don't we? If the horn honks, it makes them think they're back on the battlefield, and they hit the ground, and they get real panicky and anxiety. Well, your kids do that just in different ways. They go to school, and the bell rings, and they get completely overwhelmed. Or they go to school, and it's time to, to transition from, from one class to the next, or one activity to the next activity, and they get overwhelmed, they bite someone, or, or they knock over the desk, and then the, the adults yell at them and threaten them and increases their stress, and so they act out even more, and then they send them to the principal's office, and pretty soon they call you. This is the most interesting thing, that, it's the most interesting thing ever. You can have a kid in a classroom who's, who's losing his mind and going berserk, but when you get to the school to pick him up, he's sitting there calm as can be. You ever notice that? Calm as can be. And who's messing with him when he's sitting there in the office? Nobody. Which means he's not threatened anymore. He's no longer feeling threatened. 
something caused that child to get stressed. And then the adults around that child started getting stressed. And then the more stressed the adults got, the more stressed the child got. You see, the responsibility to calm the child is on the adult. It's not on the child. See, we, we get that backwards in our society. We believe the responsibility to calm the child is the child. Well, a child can't calm themselves if they've never been taught how to calm themselves. They have to be taught how to calm themselves by having an adult who picks them up and says, it's okay, baby. It's okay, baby. It's okay, baby. That dad rocking his son and patting him on the back is literally going back into his son's brainstem when that son is going, wah, 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 emotionally feeling like he's an infant again. He's literally going into his son's brainstem, picking him up when he had no one to pick him up, and he's saying, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. That's what we do to the brain. So all of a sudden, the brain gets a different experience than what it's gotten. Because if you didn't get it, you don't have it, and you got to get it. If you didn't get it, you don't have it, and you got to get it. It's very, very simple. Just not always easy. Dysregulation is the experience of stress outside of your window of tolerance. When you're dysregulated, you've gone outside of your window of tolerance. It's called being stressed out. Here's what's important about that. I love this little scientific quote. It is believed that affect dysregulation is a fundamental mechanism involved in all psychiatric disorders. It is believed that being stressed out is the fundamental cause of all physical, cognitive, emotional, Behavioral problems. It is believed that affect dysregulation is a fundamental mechanism involved in all psychiatric disorders. If your child has a diagnosis, any of your children are diagnosed? Diagnosis, diagnosis, diagnosis. Guess what you have? Stressed out child. Ooh. Whoa. Guess what that child does to you? It stresses you out. Ooh. Guess what you got to do? Calm your stress first, and then calm theirs. Calm your stress first, and then calm theirs. How do you calm your stress? The first, understanding. The, the first way you do it is you start breathing. Breathing. Breathing is the one proven way to calm our stress physiology. But guess what the first thing is we do when we get stressed? We stop breathing. As soon as we get stressed, we stop breathing. Guess what happens to our cortisol and our anxiety? It increases. It increases. If your child is getting agitated and getting stirred up, and you can't first stop and breathe, you're not going to be able to calm the child down. If you can't, as the parent, as the adults, if you can't stop and breathe, I didn't say stop and tell Johnny to stop what he's doing. I said stop and breathe. If you're breathing, you are not talking. That means not talking. Stop talking. Just breathe. Breathe with me right now. Inhale through your nose, exhale out of your mouth. That's a relaxation breathe. Breath. If you breathe through your nose, if you're a nose breather, it increases your anxiety. So if you nose breathe, 
it increases your anxiety. You've got to breathe through your nose and exhale your mouth. You've got to train yourself. You have to condition yourself. If your child's misbehaving and you can't stop and breathe first and foremost, I always say take three to ten deep breaths. Three to ten deep breaths before you say or do anything. Because in that moment, the reason you don't want to breathe is because your amygdala is telling you that you're going to die. That if your child does not turn that television off, somebody's going to die. That's what your amygdala is telling you. Your, see, your amygdala doesn't think, it just sees a threat. It's just like, threat! Threat! You've got to breathe to calm it down. Because the, the louder it gets, the less you hear and the less you see. You just move into survival. You've got to calm it down. When you can calm it down, then your short-term memory turns on. When your short-term memory turns back on, then you're able to think, I, maybe my child is stressed right now. What if my child is stressed right now? See, all of you feel challenged. All of you love what I'm saying. But you feel really challenged because it's banging up against your paradigm. It's banging up against the way you were raised. It's banging up against the Bible. <laughs> the Bible says, spare the rod, spoil the child. Right? We're, we're banging up against the Bible, see? But what we don't understand about spare the rod, spoil the child is the rod and the staff are used in the raising of sheep by the shepherd. The rod is used to guide and the staff is used to pull them back in the line when they stray. The rod is not used by the shepherd to beat his flock. The rod is not used to beat them over the head. Because if the shepherd beats his flock, what happens to his flock? They stray. They stray. And what happens if your flock strays into the woods? They get eaten by the coyotes. Spare the rod, spoil the child means spare a child guidance and they will be spoiled by the ways of the world. Spare them guidance. Proverbs says, raise up a child until they are mature. Until they are mature. I don't know. I'm not a preacher. Okay, Read 10, 5, John. <laughs> okay, I'm just what is it? People, I just know you. <laughs> Proverbs. It's, 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 in, it's in there. <laughs> Raise up a child in the way they shall go. And when they're old, they will not depart from it. Raise up means raise up a child until they are mature. Mature in their brains. Guess what? Your social and emotional brain doesn't fully complete its development until you're 25 years old. 25. We expect our three-year-olds to act like little adults. 25. 25. We have to raise our children up through our own guidance. Through our teaching. We have to teach them. The definition of discipline is to teach, not to punish. There's a big difference between the two. If you want to be an effective disciple, you have to be an effective teacher. An effective teacher understands 
that stress causes confused and distorted thinking and suppresses the short-term memory. An effective teacher understands that if you're stressed out, you can't learn. If you're stressed out, you can't learn. I remember when I was six years old, my daddy was teaching me math. He had these flashcards. I'd sit right by his bed. He'd be laying on the bed. And he'd be flipping his flashcards. And I'd, I'd be getting them right, and all of a sudden I'd get one wrong, and he'd say no. And he'd flash it, and I'd get stressed, and he'd flash another, and I'd get it wrong, and he'd say no. He'd get more stressed, and he'd flash another, and I'd get it wrong, and he'd go bam, and hit me upside my head. And to this day, I hate math. <laughs> a stressed out brain cannot learn. Because a stressed out brain can't remember. When your child is misbehaving, if you want to teach them, the first thing you've got to do is get them calm. Until they're calm, they're not going to learn. That's why you have to keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Because you're stressed out and you're not remembering that spanking them yesterday didn't stop the behavior. <laughs> that you took away all their stuff already. You ain't got nothing else to take away. That tells you how stressed out you are. You still trying to take some. Well, give me your underwear then. <laughs> I'm going to take something. That's pure stress. And short-term memories just shut off. Because we feel helpless. We feel helpless. We get scared. We get scared and we start feeling like if we don't get this child to behave, it's going to be our fault when they end up in jail or when they end up kicked out of school or they end up not learning. It's going to be our fault, and that means we're a bad parent, which means, deeper than that, we were a bad child. See, you're taking stuff personally that you don't need to be taking personally. And what you, for, what you forget is that as long as we're breathing, there is an opportunity for healing. <clears throat> as long as we're breathing. Some of your children are going to have a, a rough journey. They just are. Because that's what God has laid out for them. But I tell parents all the time, jail is not the end of the road. Sometimes kids need to be in jail to give themselves, give their brains an opportunity to mature. We have so much fear about our kids going to jail. Now, I ain't never been in jail and don't want to go. But jail does not keep a child from being your child. This is a, a, a long-term thing, so I call it the importance of relationship. See, we have to spend more time focused on relationship. Relationship is where you win with your children. Not in behavior control. <clears throat> behavior control is going to cause you to lose your relationship. Obsessing and focusing on your child's behavior is going to cause you to lose your relationship. I want you to hear this. As long as your children are young, you can get all stressed out and be overwhelming and controlling and punishing about their behaviors. But as long as you're so obsessed about their behaviors that you're getting stressed out and you're, you're, you're in pain and then they're in pain, they're just going to get older. They're going to keep having behaviors because they're going to keep being stressed out. The behaviors are just going to change. They're going to get sneakier. 
And then when they hit adolescence, you have now lost all relationship and you can't control them anymore. Because now they've got a brain that's a little bit more developed that says, hey, I can just leave. Relationship allows you the ability to influence your child. Relationship allows you to influence. Control only allows you to use fear and intimidation and power. Focus on relationship. And that's so hard. It's so hard to focus on relationship and to realize that your relationship with your child is how you influence your child. Mm -hmm. And you'll be influencing your child throughout the lifespan. I influence my children now because I have a great relationship with my kids. I don't hit my kids. Never hit my kids. My 24-year-old daughter, I, the last time I hit her, she was about 18 months old. 18 months old. I was like 23, 24 years old. All I have blueprints for is, is whipping. Mm -hmm. And my dad used to plug a leather strap and he was serious about it. I didn't get spanked, I got whipped. And so that's, I got whooped. That's right. That's what I have blueprints for. Is to hit and to yell and to whoop. So I was in graduate school, my 18 month old, her mom and I, we were bickering. Early, it was like 7.30 in the morning. I still see it clear as day. We were bickering, she was ironing clothes. We're bickering about something, not yelling, not screaming, just bickering. It was tense. And so my little 18-month-old, she was naked. She walked into the kitchen, and she felt the stress, and she started peeing in the middle of the floor. And I saw her, and I swatted her on her butt, and I picked her up, and I said, you don't pee on the floor. And I walked her into the bathroom, and I said, pee goes in the potty, not on the floor. You pee in the potty. I'm standing there like this. Who am I really stressed out about? Stress that better mom. We were bickering, had nothing to do with my 18 month old. I'm stressed out. I mean, my own stuff. Right? Got my blueprints turned on. That's the kind of thing my daddy would have done. So I'm standing there, my arms folded, scowling, looking at my two year old. She's looking up at me. And she had big old, big old tear formed in her eye and just. It crested her little fat cheek. And I just melted. I just melted. I got on my knees in front of her. And I took her little hands and I said, Daddy is so sorry. Daddy will never hit you again. I'm so sorry. And I didn't. I never hit my child again. Any of my children. I didn't have blueprints for not hitting my kids. I had blueprints for hitting. But I made a decision in that moment I was going to do something different. And I did it. I didn't know this stuff. I didn't know this stuff. I was, I was a kid. I was a kid, but I made a decision I was going to do something different. That I was not going to do what mom and dad had done, what grandma and grandpa had done, what great-grandfather and great-grandma had done. I was not going to do that. I was not going to do what the generations had done. I was going to do something different. And I figured it out, and I have a great relationship with my kids. I've always had a great relationship with my kids, and I still influence my kids. 
I call my 24-year-old right now and ask her to do something. She'll do it. She'll tell me she's thinking about doing something, and I'll say, well, you know, you probably don't want to do that, or go ahead and do it, and we'll see how it happens. I have a great relationship. Even my 26-year-old son, he calls me. Dad, my car's, my car's in the shop. Clutch went out. And I say, I told you not to buy that car. <laughs> and because of relationship, he says, I know, I know, I know. What you want? Uh, nothing. You know there's lots of money, right? <laughs> relationship. Invest in the relationship. It's so hard. It's so foreign. It's so hard because we get so stressed. You know what happens when you get stressed? You go into survival. You go into survival. You constrict. When you constrict, guess what you can't do? You can't be open. When you're stressed, you can't be open. If you're in stress right now with your child, and you got a child who's stressing you out, guess what? Ha guess what's happened? No affection. There's no affection in the home. Now, many of you, that just ties right into your own blueprints because you didn't get a lot of affection in your home. We don't grow up in a society that's real affectionate. We grew up in a society with, with, with good parents who give us a little hug and a little pat and, you know, go play. But we don't grow up with a lot of affection. We don't grow up with a lot of hugs, a lot of eye contact, a lot of I love yous. We don't grow up with that. So then when you get stressed, your own blueprints turn on. So you don't, like, giving affection is difficult. Touching someone is one of your primary sensory systems. So when you get stressed, you don't want to touch. You ever said to your spouse, or you, don't touch me, don't you touch me. <laughs> and then you say, don't even talk to me. Don't even talk to me. I don't even want to see. Right? Why do we do that? Because we're trying to lower stress. We feel overwhelmed. See, it's through your eye, contact, your eye contact that you directly stimulate your amygdala. Through smell, you directly stimulate your amygdala. So you don't want in, in ear, your sound when you're when you're stressed. You're turning off sensory pathways because it's too overwhelming. You can't take anymore. You can't handle anymore. That's why when your children get stressed, they don't make eye contact with you. It's too stressful. Stimulates the frontal brain. It's too much. And so what do we do? We say, "Look at me. You look at me." And then they go. <laughs> your child's not making eye contact with you don't look at him when your child's not making eye contact with you don't look at him you put your, you put your gaze wherever their gaze is and then go stand over beside them and keep talking about whatever it is you need to talk about because they're hearing you but you're not overwhelming their brain by trying to get them to look at you. And as soon as you start looking wherever they're looking and you stand beside them, guess who they start looking at? You. And then once they start looking at you, because all of a sudden their brain feels a little less threatened, their brain feels a little less threatened, and you can, you can look at them a little bit. Make a little eye contact, keep talking, make a little eye contact, keep talking. Before you know it, you just start talking. Bruce Lee says, one of the best lessons you can learn is to master the ability to breathe. Just talked about that. I can't tell you how important it is. I can't underscore that enough. Let's breathe. This is my bowl. Carry it around. It's just practice breathing. Take three deep breaths. Inhaling through your nose, exhaling out of your mouth. 
This is Brett, a.k.a. Jerome. <laughs> He's my driver and my assistant. He's also a great opportunity for me to breathe. Because he's always messing up. <laughs> <laughs> Showed up late this morning. You know how you text somebody and you know like they're supposed to be somewhere, somewhere at a certain time. You text them and you already know you're waking them up out of a dead sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of opportunities to breathe. You're going to constantly get opportunities to breathe. I'm thankful for my opportunity. I haven't choked you yet, have I? No, I hadn't even yelled, have I? You've given me plenty of opportunities, haven't you? <laughs> breathe. Your kids are going to give you plenty of opportunities. Plenty of opportunities to breathe. Practice your breathing. Calm yourself down first before you start focusing on them. The reason you have to do that is you have to calm down your amygdala. Your fear receptor, your fear receptor in your brain will turn on your blueprints. Your blueprints were there before your kids came along. They were there before your kids came along. And when you get stressed, that's what gets turned on. It's not about your child. You think it's about your child. But the reality is, is this little child came into your life to stress you out enough to work on stuff you hadn't worked on that you needed to. That's why they're in your life. To stress you out enough to have to deal with stuff you just thought you had gotten old enough and didn't have to deal with. They're like, knock, knock, knock. Time to deal with your stuff. That's what they do. The more readily you're willing to look at your stuff, the more you can help them work through their stuff. It becomes very important. The stress model, very simple. I was going over this. Maybe some of you guys can, can join me tomorrow again. Um, Facebook, Post Institute, so many videos. Been teaching this stuff for a long time. So all I can do is kind of touch on stuff with you. I'm going to touch on the stress model real quick because this really changed my life as someone who works with children and works with families. The stress model is very simple. It says all behavior arises. All behavior arises from a state of stress, and you don't always know what's stressing you. Nine times out of ten, you don't know what's stressing you. In between the behavior and the stress is the presence of a primary emotion. There are only two primary emotions, love and fear. Those are your only two primary emotions. Everything else comes from that. When your child is yelling at you, when your child is ignoring you, when your child is defiant, it's because they are in a state of fear. A defiant child is a scared child. They're not scared of you. They're scared in their brain. Their brain goes into freeze. So when you ask them to do something and they go, and you say, I know, I know you heard me. Oh, I know you heard me. They're in a state of freeze. And then what we do is we keep pushing, we keep pushing, we keep pushing. What happens when you, when you push a dog into a corner? They bite. They go from freeze to fight. Or they go from freeze to fight. See, we always go to freeze first. We freeze so we can determine what we need to do next. Then we either fight or we flee. I was just on the phone earlier with my uh, regional manager who had done a little phone call with a parent, an assessment. 
And she's talking about, you know, a 16-year-old girl that's been going on for a long time. And this little girl's depressed and she's causing all these problems. And mom just can't do it anymore, doesn't want to do it anymore. Can, do you know what's going on with this child? And I'm like, yeah, I know what's going on with this child. She freezes. And she freezes and she flees and then she gets backed into a corner and then she fights. You got children who freeze and flee. And a lot of times the children who freeze and flee get backed into corners and they have to come out fighting. Or they freeze and they flee and they cut them themselves and get depressed. Or you got children who freeze and then they fight. If you can start to see the freeze, you never have to get to the fight or the fight. The problem is when we're stressed, we are not attuned. We can't see anything except fear. When we are stressed, the only thing we can see is threat. When you are stressed, you can't see anything else. All you can see is how bad it is. When you are stressed, you have to see a problem. That's what your brain tells you. Your brain informs you when you are stressed that what you are looking at is a problem. Because that's what it's supposed to do. Your brain is supposed to protect you. Your amygdala is supposed to protect you. The problem is our amygdala is protecting us when it doesn't need to. Our amygdala starts protecting us when there's nothing to be protected from. We just get conditioned. So the stress model says all behavior arises from a state of stress. In between the behaviors and the stress is the presence of our primary emotion. There are only two primary emotions, love and fear. It's through the expression, the processing, and the understanding of the fear that you calm the stress and diminish the behavior. I stopped focusing on behaviors a long time ago. Because anytime I'm seeing a behavior problem, I see stress. <coughs> and you don't have to attend to everything. We had, a, we had five kids over at our house last night, and they were siblings. And one of them, they were playing on the printer, and printing on one's a little autistic kid. And he, he, his brother's older, is like 12, 13, you know, the, the, the little one who's autistic wanted something, the brother said no, and so he then called him a baby, and, and he said, Miss Edna, he called me a baby! And Miss Edna said, okay. And, and he's back over there by his brother, and don't call me a baby! When you're stressed, you want to attend to everything. Don't call your brother a baby. You guys stop doing that. When you're not stressed, that doesn't, that, they'll figure that out. Miss Edna didn't say nothing. I didn't say nothing. Everybody's safe. Guess what? We figured it out. We didn't create more stress. No one has to get in trouble over something that don't mean nothing. We get when, when we're stressed, we try we start trying to put out all the fires. We start trying to control everything. Relax. Tranquilo. Tranquilo. <laughs> Breathe. Calm down. Relax. through some things real quick. I'm going to answer some questions. Exploring the parenting continuum. You have two sides here. You have reactivity side and responsibility side. Over on the reactivity side, you have fear. All match negative 100, you have the death penalty. Over on the positive side, you have responsibility and love. All the way to the far extreme, positive 100 is perfect love. The significance here is that the most common things we do with children at home and at schools all on the reactivity and fear side. What do all these, what are the most, what's the common denominator of all these things? Number, number one, we don't realize that they set on the same continuum of the death penalty. Because the death penalty is negative 100. 
See, these things that we do with our children are negative 1 through negative 10, so we never think about them like being on the same continuum as the death penalty. But what's the common denominator? Stress. All these things cause more stress. Time out causes more stress. When a child is stressed out, children don't act out for attention. Children act out because they need attention. If a child is acting out to the point that you've got to send him away, he's telling you he doesn't have enough oxytocin to calm himself down. He doesn't need to be sent away. He needs to be brought in. He needs to be brought in, but you've got to calm yourself down first so you can open up enough to say, hey, why don't you come hang out with me for just a little bit? Time in instead of time out. Isolation, sending kids to their rooms. You're sending a child to their room because of their behavior. Problems is because they don't have enough oxytocin to keep them in their window of tolerance. You send them to their room, what are you doing for their oxytocin? Nothing. Nothing. We don't realize that these things are on the same continuum as the death penalty. I live approximately one and a half, maybe two miles from Pelican Bay in Crescent City. Pelican Bay is two miles from my house. <coughs> I used to live there. Every individual, every individual has experienced trauma in Pelican Bay. Every individual. But do you think Pelican Bay sitting out there? You would think that Pelican Bay sitting there in the middle of Crescent City, Crescent City would be the most peaceful, pleasant environment and community ever, right? According to our society, if you create enough threat, then you should behave. So, so Crescent City should be a per it should be a little heaven, a little slice of heaven. It's not. It's not. There's lots of drug use, lots of theft. I think one of the highest cities for petty theft in the state, and freaking Pelican Bay is right there. You think a criminal thinks before they steal something? Oh, if I do this, I might go to Pelican Bay. No, it never crosses their mind. Because stress causes confusing, distorted thinking, suppresses the short-term memory. They're not thinking about Pelican Bay. Now, if they were thinking about Pelican Bay, they might, but in the moment, they're not. When your children are stressed out, it doesn't matter what you threaten them with. It doesn't matter that you threaten them with a spanking. It doesn't matter that you take away their toys. It doesn't matter that they lose a star. It doesn't matter if you give them a consequence. It doesn't matter because they're stressed out. This side of the continuum says, if something you're doing is not working, do more of it. That's what that side of the continuum says. If something you're doing is not working, do more of it. But why do we do it? Number one, because we're conditioned to do it. Number two, it works for 70% of children. 70% of children, you can do these things, and, and it works. They'll act right. But guess what? With 70% of children, 70% 70 of children are children who haven't experienced severe trauma, children who have, who have loving, secure, nurturing parents. They have a brain capable of being able to handle stress. So with those children, anything you do will work. With those children, you could raise your eyebrow. Right? You know when your parents snap, you better pull it together. But if you got serious trauma, 
and you're already stressed, it doesn't matter. It doesn't help. It just makes it worse. Questions about consequences. I know that's usually a pretty, pretty hot topic. We think we gotta, we gotta give children consequences to teach them responsibility, right? Gotta teach them responsibility. Well, the problem with consequences of consequence is a reaction to an action. Child does something, then you react and give them the consequence. The problem with that is that you're not teaching them responsibility by being reactive. You're teaching them how to be reactive. And when a child is stressed and you give them a consequence, they don't remember it anyway. They don't retain it. You take two children to the grocery store, two different children to the grocery store, do they both steal? Let's say they both steal. You take one child to the grocery store, you say, you know what? You steal, you're going to get a basket. Your consequence for your stealing is you're going to get in a basket, you little thief. That's going to keep you from stealing. <laughs> it doesn't feel very good. It's very reactive. It's very blaming. It's very shaming. It just creates more stress. Your kid may not steal while, you're, while you've got them in the basket, but as soon as you're not there or they're not in the basket, they're going to go right back to stealing because you did nothing for the stress. <laughs> you did nothing for the stress. But you can take another child, you can go to the grocery store, you say, you know what, honey, when we come to the grocery store, it's really stressful. And when you get stressed out, you take things that don't belong to you because it makes you feel better. Because see, stealing is an external attempt to soothe an internal state. An external attempt to soothe an internal state and becomes addictive. Children get addicted to stealing because whatever that object is, they think it's going to make them feel better for that moment. So you say to your child, I know when we come to the grocery store, it's really stressful, so instead of letting you walk out here and be all stressed, I'm going to have you get in the basket. Because in the basket, I can keep you safe. Now, if your child's 14 years old, <laughs> you tell them what Brian Post said. <laughs> Not really. If you have a child who's 14 and wants to get in the basket, put them in the basket. Because emotionally, they're not 14. Right? But it's the concept. The idea is to reduce the space. Containment. Keep them with you. Let them hold the basket. Let them push the basket. Contain the space. Don't set them up for failure. Yeah, failure. Don't set them up for failure by not being mindful and not being responsible. It becomes very, very important. You guys are actually going to get a copy of this book. Fear to Love, Parenting Challenging Adopted Children. I'm going to give you a copy of that tonight before you leave. Um, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child till he's mature, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is my agency, my wraparound agency. It's called Parents in Training. If you're an adoptive family, if you're really struggling, you feel like your child's at risk of a higher level of placement, you might qualify for wraparound services. All you got to do is reach out to Leslie, and she can let you know if you qualify. If you qualify, we may be able to offer you services. And we are really committed to helping the families in California create better communication, create deeper understanding, and help their children heal trauma. Some families are in positions where their children have already been sent to residential. We want to bring those children back. I've been doing this for a long time. So we want to be able to help you. We want to be able to support you. And then for more information on the rest of my work, there's always the Post Institute. But I really want to encourage you to go on Facebook, check me out, 
every day, watch the videos, repetition. If you can't make it tomorrow, that's your single best thing. I may not see you guys again for another five, 10 years. Repetition, repetition, repetition. You have the ability, I want you, I want you to hear something. Each one of you, as parents to these children who have been deeply wounded and deeply hurt, have the ability to create healing for these children. Not your therapist, not your psychiatrist, not your, your group home or your residential. You, as the parent, have everything your child needs because all your child needs is love. That's all they need. Love is the most powerful healing force in the universe. And when you can calm your fear, when you can calm your fear, and you can have faith, and you can give your child love in the moment when you want to give it to them the least, give it to them in that moment when they need it the most, you will create healing in their lives and in your home. God bless you. Thank you for being here. God bless you too.